For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're in Hebrews chapter 12, and this whole section, you know, we're into the really practical section of the book of Hebrews. It's the question of how to live out this life of faith, and the author's giving them really good advice. The audience is being persecuted for what they believe. He points them to remember Christ's suffering for us. We talked about that last week, how understanding what God was willing to endure for us helps us and motivates us in realizing and recognizing that, you know, bad circumstances in this life doesn't mean that God is out to get us, that there are many different reasons why people suffer, but all of them are opportunities to grow and to draw near to God in faith. We saw in Hebrews chapter 11 that there were all these great examples from history uh, in Scripture about these people who had decided to do radical things for God, to just trust Him in radical ways, and that He had used them in ways that ha- are still having an impact on us today, even though they lived thousands of years ago. And we saw the importance of persevering through suffering, that we shouldn't give up because it's hard, that life is hard no matter what. We're going to suffer no matter what in this life, but With God in the picture, our suffering can have meaning, and it can accomplish things that matter, and that we can even still have joy and fulfillment of purpose in the midst of suffering. This whole thing has kind of been wrapped up under this idea that faith is believing God's promises and putting them into action, that there's an intellectual component to it, but then there's an action component to it, that it's not just about believing, but it's allowing those beliefs to affect your everyday choices. Another way we can put that is that we are making God's priorities our priorities. That what we're going to do is we're going to study and look at what does God value and then try to live as though God's values make more sense than our values. That we're going to put His truth, His word, His ways as the model for our lives in our ways. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning is this idea of making God's priorities your priorities. And if you think about this much, what you see pretty quickly is it's much easier in theory than in practice. It's much easier to be like, oh yeah, I'm all out for God. And it's like we can really feel that way. We can really believe that in the moment. And it can be true to a great extent. But what happens is, is that other competing priorities that are not God's priorities get matched up with that, and then we have to make decisions. And often we find that our priorities are not what we thought. We're easily self-deceived about what we actually think is important. Isn't that interesting? But it's so true. Think about Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, Matthew 26. You know, it's Jesus' last night before he's captured, and Peter's like, I will be with you. I will die. I will never forsake you. And and Jesus is like, actually, you're going to deny me three times before the night is over. Do you think Peter was lying to Jesus, or he was lying to himself? I think Peter earnestly believed he was willing to pay whatever price. But then Jesus was captured, hauled off, beaten, 
And Peter was within earshot, seeing what was happening, and someone said to him, hey, aren't you Jesus' disciple? And he said, I don't know him. When it actually came down to choosing loyalty to Christ over his own life, Peter failed the test, and his true priorities were revealed. Our author gives us a challenge here in Hebrews 12, 14. He says, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So there's a priority. There's a piece of of advice. This is who God is. God says our priority should be to pursue peace with all men. And of course, we all say, absolutely, yes, that is very important. And I believe in that, and that, that's, that's one of the things that's most important in life, being able to pursue peace with all men, all people, until it gets brought up against another competing priority like protect what's yours and don't let anyone disrespect you. You see, you, you're like, well, I can do both. And it's like, yeah, to a point. But there are going to be circumstances in this life where you're going to have to choose what's more important to you, pursuing peace with all men or protecting what is yours and not letting people disrespect you. We look at both of those and that, they both resonate with us. They both say, yes, that's right. That's the kind of person I want to be. Both. And God says, okay, but what happens when you have to choose? We know what God's choice is. We see it in Jesus Christ. He had to make that choice. Isaiah 53, 4 through 6 says, Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. And like a sheep that is silent before shearers. So he did not open his mouth. What was more important to Christ? Was it being reconciled to us or was it being respected the way that he deserved? Protecting what was his or dying so that we could be forgiven? The all-powerful creator God of the universe who spoke the universe into being, who said, let there be light, and the universe burst into existence came and dwelt among us, was wronged, was beaten, was falsely accused, was treated unjustly, and he was silent before his enemies. He allowed it all to happen because peace with all men was more important to him than being treated with the respect that he deserves. Would we make that same choice? It tells us something about our true priorities, doesn't it? 
He keeps going. This is a rough one this morning, guys. He says in Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. Yes. Yes. Forgive those who wrong you because God has forgiven you. Yes, we look at that and we say, that is what it means. That's what it's all about right there, forgiveness. You know, bitterness destroys us and God has forgiven us so much that we should forgive anyone who wrongs us. That's the kind of person I want to be until it's pitted against another value. Something like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. That also sounds right, doesn't it? Those are both right and good. Yes, be forgiving. No, I will not be trampled on. I will forgive always and never be trampled on. That's what we want. That's how we want to live. And yet, there will be circumstances where those are pitted at odds against one another. And clearly, God has demonstrated which is the higher priority for him and the way he lived his life and what he taught. Jesus, Matthew 5, 38 through 40, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have his coat also. And I think we tend to gloss over this. We're like, yeah, turn the other cheek. It's a great idea. Yes, turn the other cheek. That's the kind of person I want to be until you get hit in the face. (laughs) Then your real priorities will be discovered by you and whoever hit you in the face. (laughs) Jesus meant this. This isn't hyperbole for him. This is him saying, this is who I am. And this is what matters more. And this is who I want you to be. Luke 23, 33 through 34, they came to a place called the Skull. And there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And they cast up lots, dividing his clothing among themselves. As they drove the spikes into the arms and feet of the all-powerful creator God of the universe, who literally could have destroyed them with a thought, could have wiped out the entire human experience after beating and mocking and spitting and torturing, he cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What are his priorities? Grace, love, forgiveness. We like to say, yes, we, we want to forgive and we want to be forgiving people. But when it comes down to protecting ourselves or our own sense of justice, this is a particular struggle for me. I have this strong sense of, you know, things need to be fair. Things need to be just. And they also need to go my way. <laughs> That's usually what just is, is what I want, Right? And so, you know, when you really think about what's happening here, put yourself in Jesus' shoes. You've come to save these people. This is how they've treated you. They're going through with it. They're driving the spikes into your arms. You know, I think I pull myself up off the cross, and it's face-melting like Raiders of the Lost Ark time. 
You know, it's like the wrath of God. is. It's like, no, we're not doing this. And he legitimately cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He has compassion on those who are hell-bent on destroying him. Priorities. It's interesting. It's, it's a much more difficult thing. It's easy to live out the priorities of God when they don't compete with other things that we value. But it's the, exactly the point where it does compete, where our choices make a difference. And we often face these kinds of choices, and we don't even realize that we're doing it, and we don't recognize the importance of it in the moment, which is why it's so critical that we slow down and think about these things. Our author continues in verse 16 of chapter 12, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Now remember, this is a Jewish audience. They grew up hearing the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew exactly who Esau was. They knew exactly what the author was talking about here. We may not. What he's talking about is Esau, who chose to prioritize the material world over spiritual truth. And a famous Bible story we read about in Genesis 25. Abraham had been promised by God the opportunity to play an incredible role in human history. That through one of Abraham's descendants, the entire world would be blessed. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Jacob and Esau. And they were twins, but Esau was born first, and then Jacob. And they were sort of competing for this idea of the birthright, of, of being the major inheritor of the family. And in Genesis 25, verses 27 to 34, we read, When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game. But Rebekah, the wife, loved Jacob. And when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there because I am famished. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. You want the soup? Give me your birthright. Esau said, listen. Behold, I am about to die. So what use of the birthright is it, is it to me? And Jacob said, first, swear to me. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It's an interesting story. You know, clearly, you know, there's a lot going on here. Esau was home. He had been out. Uh, he'd worked up an appetite, he came home and he was hungry. The idea that he was going to die is very unlikely. He's home, right? He just really wants something and Jacob had just happened to be making something that smelled really good. And Esau was like, you know, what good is my birthright? If I don't make it to tomorrow, give me that stew. And Jacob is like, no, seriously, swear. 
What was this great sin? Why is this showing up in Hebrews saying, whatever you do, don't be like Esau? Why is that showing up there? His great sin was he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup and some bread. There was also bread. (laughs) Again, that's kind of lost on a 21st century audience. We don't necessarily have the historical background that would be helpful for really understanding this. We have to understand what what the birthright is. The birthright was actually a fairly interesting concept in this time. Because families were largely agrarian. It was like each family was its own family business. They had their ranch or their farm or their, or their business. And rather than, you know, they would have many children. And then rather than divide up the inheritance equally among the children, which is what we typically do today, they would leave the bulk of the inheritance to one child who would take over the role of the family leadership when the father died. And so that, that child got... It was usually the oldest child. They got more of the family inheritance. They basically inherited the family business. But then they also inherited the responsibility for the other siblings, making sure that they were taken care of, that they had enough. And it was their job to lead the family. And so this role was a key role. And in Esau's family, because Esau is a child of Isaac, and because Isaac is a child of Abraham, and because God made a covenant with Abraham, saying, through your descendants, all nations of the earth would be blessed, it wasn't going to be through every descendant of Abraham. It was going to be through a specific descendant of Abraham. And so that blessing, that covenant, was passed on through the birthright Specifically, the son that received the birthright would be in the line through which Jesus Christ would be born and come to die for the sins of mankind. A pretty nice thing to have on your eternal resume, if I do say so myself. You know, your heavenly LinkedIn would say, great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. I would like to have that on my resume. And so did Jacob. But Esau was hungry. And he wanted a bowl of soup. It wasn't that he didn't want the birthright. It wasn't that he didn't care. It was partly that he didn't understand fully what it was. But he clearly just grossly misjudged the situation. I'm sure if we see Esau in eternity future in heaven, we'll be there and we'll be like, so... How was the bread? And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I know. I messed up, but I'm still here. He allowed the immediate circumstances of his hunger to overshadow the big picture. And the thing that I hope we'll understand, as ridiculous as that seems in hindsight, we make that same decision all the time. It's a very easy mistake to make. It's a question of priorities. This statement might upset some people. Your life is largely a reflection of choices you've made according to what you value. And I make that statement not because I don't understand that environment matters, the circumstances in which we're born, our parents, like a lot of things affect who we become. But One of the most important things that affects who you become 
is what you value and the choices you make according to those values. That is one of the key factors that shapes your life. It's the part of your life that you have control over. You don't have control over everything, but you do have a significant chunk of responsibility for your life and the way that it is, is because of choices that you have made, and those choices were made because of your values. It's difficult because what we value most is sometimes not even clear to us. It's best evaluated, it's best understood by looking at our choices. And a lot of times we look at our choices and we say, well, if I'd have known this, I wouldn't have done that, or if I had this or that, and we have a lot of regret. But yet, a lot of times we have a lot of regret, but we still continue to make the same choices, and then we wonder, why is my life turning out this way? We get caught in a feedback loop because we refuse to understand that there's a deeper issue undergirding our circumstances that has to do with our heart and what it is that's really the most important thing to us. The choices we make are incredibly powerful. What's more important to you really? TV, games, online, entertainment, or time with your family? What's more important? What takes precedent? Not in your heart, but in the way you live your life and the decisions that you make. What's more important, making your house perfect and beautiful or spending time with your neighbors? That your neighbors see something on the outside that looks together or that they get to know you and see what's on the inside? What do you spend more time investing yourself in? What's more important, working lots of hours? having a great job, being able to provide, having a lot of money, or investing deeply in relationships. All these things we tend to say, well, it's both. I want to have both. Can I have both? The answer is yes. But what are the more important values that drive your decision-making? And we look at this and we say, well, none of that's evil. Come on, Ryan. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. There's nothing wrong with, you know, feathering the nest a little bit. There's nothing wrong with working hard. And I completely agree with you. There is nothing any more wrong with that than there is with a bowl of soup. Bowl of soup's not evil. Nothing evil about a bowl of soup. Nothing evil about being entertained, working hard, and having a nice place. It's your priorities that matter in those things, just like they mattered for Esau. The power of choice is underestimated by all of us, and we make decisions all the time, every day, that matter, that have an impact. How much will I work? How much time will I spend with my family? How involved will my kids be in activities and sports? What are the values, what are the priorities that are driving those decisions on a daily basis? What will I do with my free time when I become an empty nester? That's been on my mind a lot lately. 
My life is changing dramatically. My kids are getting older. There's a real temptation to take and reclaim that time for selfish things. And I'm free to do that. But what does that say? Is that, a, will that what I do with that time will, will be a reflection of my actual values. What will retirement look like? Is your retirement plan a reflection of your actual values? It's a really important question. These are choices that matter. For Esau, he chose soup and bread, and he was well-fed for probably a good 12 hours. And then he was hungry again. Jacob chose the birthright and became the father of Israel. He became a man known as Israel and who is a direct and who Jesus Christ is a direct descendant of his bloodline. That choice really mattered in the face of eternity. And sometimes these choices for him and for us are irreversible. That's why it's so important is there are choices that we make that cannot be undone. Hebrews 12, 17, he says, For you know that even afterwards when Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. He found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He wanted to undo what he had done. He sincerely regretted his choice. But it was undoable. When he confronts his father after his father gave the blessing to Jacob, he turns to him in Genesis 27, 34. And when Esau heard that his father say, I can't give you the birthright, I already gave it to Jacob. Esau cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me even also, oh my father. This can't be undoable. This can't be irreversible. But it was. We make irreversible choices. Esau gave away his birthright. We give ourselves away sexually. This is one of my great regrets. As a non-Christian, I pursued sex. I got married. I was dating a beautiful, wonderful Christian girl. She was a virgin when we got married. She gave me something I could never give her. It was an irreversible decision. And I live with that. I don't think about it every day. It's not destroying my life. But there are decisions that I made early in my life that limited what I could give to my wife. And I'd heard. I mean, we all hear, this is a great thing to give, you know. But when you're 16, it's like, mwah, 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 right? <laughs> but then you're 43 and you're married for 20 years and you're still aware of the fact that there are decisions that you made that are irreversible. Another thing like that in my life I've seen is losing my temper. There are things that I, I, I've said in anger that I can never take back. Now, the relationship can move on, it can heal, but there are things that, they're just bells that you can't unring. And so in a moment, you can destroy trust. You can destroy a relationship with a few poorly chosen words. 
You can do so much damage. And it can't be undone. We choose work over family and miss our kids growing up. I'm thinking a lot about this one. My son moved out six months ago. And my daughter got her driver's license two weeks ago. So I'm basically an empty nester. (laughs) I texted my, you know, she got her license two weeks ago. I haven't seen her since. (laughs) I'm texting her like, "Uh, are you still alive? She's like, yes. And I'm like, you're not texting while driving, are you? She's like, no. I'm like, so you do stop places? Yes. Could home be one of those places? (laughs) Three days later, I'm texting her. If you want me to continue to pay your car insurance, please send proof of life. (laughs) It's not that bad. But, you know, my life has changed dramatically as a result of that. I'm in this place. And, you know, I'm not, I don't know. I'm not going to say I was a good dad. I hope I was a good dad. But one thing I will say is I spent a lot of time with my kids. We had family dinner three or four nights a week, no matter what. We went on three, four family vacations a year. And I had weekly time every week with my son from the day he was born to the present day and weekly time with my daughter from the day that she was born to the present day. We had a day, dad and girl day, dad and boy day. We spent two, three hours together at least. So I think, you know, what I'm saying is, is I spent, I don't know how good of a dad I was, but I know I spent a lot of time with my kids. And now that it's almost over, I'm like Schindler at the end of the movie. I'm like, oh, I should have done more. I could have had two dad and girl days and two dad and like, why didn't I invest more in my kids? Because it's irreversible at this point. I could change the time I spend with them now, but I can't be more invested in my kids when they were little. And what I'm saying is, is even though I objectively think I did a a pretty good job on that level, the grief of knowing I can't do more is one of those irreversible decisions that we have to weigh out and, and deal with. Adultery is one of those irreversible decisions. You know, I, I regularly have a nightmare that I've had an affair. And it's awful because it's not a sexy dream. It's just all the bad parts of what adultery would be where in the dream, I'm the only one that knows about it, and I'm weighing out, okay, do I come forward and be honest and potentially sacrifice my relationship with my wife, betray my children, get fired and have no way of providing for my family, or do I fake it for the rest of my life? That's the calculus that's happening in this dream, and it's very real, it's very intense. I often wake up in a sweat. And for the first few seconds when I wake up, I'm not sure if it's it's something that's real or not. And I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, it's a dream. (laughs) Oh, thank you, Lord. (laughs) You know, I wake up my wife, it's a dream. (laughs) I go to bed. It's not the affair dream again, is it? (laughs) 
And I, you know, it's interesting. I've discussed this with other leaders in our church and others have had the same experience. I'm like, why does God allow this? And I think, I think the answer is, is because he wants me, for me, I think he's reminding me of how easy it is. I'm one choice away from everything that I love about my life being destroyed. And it's not a threat. It's a, it's a, it's a warm embrace of, of protection. It would be so easy to lose everything that I love through a choice that could not be undone. And so we wrestle with those things. They are irreversible. But they are also redeemable. And that is a critical point that we have to understand is we've made choices that we can't reverse, but we can give those things to God and watch him bring amazing things about even from the worst choices that we've made. Isaiah 44, says, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. There is nothing that is outside of God being able to do miraculous things. Through the worst choices that you've ever made, there is always hope. Esau grew up, forgave his brother, and they were reconciled. They were a family again. Esau became a wealthy man, and he became the father of a nation in his own right called Edom. He was a leader. He was restored into this role of, of wealth and leadership. But his brother became Israel. Esau lived a great life, but he made a decision early on that he couldn't reverse because he had the wrong priorities. There is no hunger or desire worth trading away your opportunity to be a part of God's plan. And I know that you know that, but we have to admit when that is tested, the outcome could be very scary especially if we don't recognize it in the moment. If we're not prepared to think through, what does my decision here, how does that reveal to me what my true priorities are? We have to, in those difficult moments, remember to bring God into the situation. I can't tell you how many times I've made a tough decision I've been like, oh, glad that turned out well. And God been like, yeah, it might have been good to pray about it too. I'm just like, oh. Yeah. Should have prayed about that. The good news is, is that if we're in a decision that's difficult, we can pray and we can turn to the word of God and we can be a part of a community where people can help us work through that question of, How do I best live out God's priorities in this situation? And the great news is, is that we can trust that God, even if we make the wrong decisions, which we will, God can and will redeem those decisions as we turn more and more of our life over to Him. 
We can't undo the past, but we can choose our path moving forward. And one of the great lies that we believe is I've made too many bad choices in the path, and it's I am irredeemable, I am too broken, I might as well continue down this path of destruction. Because when we do that, we're denying the power of the creator God of the universe to redeem us. We can choose a different path. We can still, I don't care if you're 100 years old and you've been living against God your entire life, you can still right now change your course and start making decisions to let God into your life. To cry out to Jesus Christ to come into your life, to admit that you need forgiveness, and you can begin reaping the blessings of God's plan for your life. This side of the grave, it's never too late to be redeemed for eternity. We are never so far gone that we can't turn to God. But we can also let Him redeem our choices in this life. But we have to stop digging the pit. One last story I I, I wanted to share as I was thinking about this was uh, when I came up into adult ministry from our student ministry about 12 years ago, I started doing some counseling. I was helping learning how to counsel, like pastoral counsel, biblical counseling. And a guy came in, I don't know why, he wasn't a part of our church. Uh, I think his girlfriend was, was going here at the time. And he um, came in and started talking about his life. And he had a lot of problems. He'd made a lot of mistakes. He had, you know, five or six different kids by five or six different women. Uh, he was a construction worker. He was paying child support to all those different women. And his, his finances were being rationed uh, by the government to make sure that he paid his child support. He'd done time as, as um, a deadbeat dad. And we talked, and you know, he felt like he had all this like, weight that he couldn't, he couldn't get his life together because these decisions from the past were overwhelming him. And we talked about this. We talked about a relationship with Christ how eternity could be redeemed and how you know, God would work with him if he started making new choices. God would work with him to begin unraveling this incredible knot that he had gotten himself into. And he came to Christ and he started walking with God and he started making different decisions. And it looked like things were going to change in a real way for this guy. Then a girl who had some wealth came along and he he got into a relationship with her and he saw that was his way out. He would live with her, never marry her, and then his his ex-wives and baby's mamas would never have access to her money and he could live a good life hostile to the things of God. And And he walked away. Now, I don't know what happened to him after that, but I'm pretty sure it's likely another baby, another mom, and another child support would have been the likely outcome of that scenario because he kept digging the pit. 
And what we need to do is put down the shovel and turn to God in humility and say, my way clearly isn't working. It's your way. And I want to give you the opportunity, God, to not only redeem my soul, but redeem my life. Put me to good use in in loving and serving other people. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. So there you have Hebrews 12. We praise you, God. You are our Redeemer. We do have regrets and we know that we're making mistakes right now and that there's going to be more in the future. But uh, thank you for the hope that you give us of how you can wash away and have washed away our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and that you can redeem our lives and give us real meaning, real purpose, and that you have plans that you're eager to see happen in our lives, roles that we can play. And we just ask God that you'll help us to see those, to slow down the time and recognize those important decisions in the moment so that we can wrestle with them in faith and choose you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.